Good morning. Wow, I missed you. It's been a year, almost a year. Uh, so much has changed. So many people I don't recognize, and I've now become an expert at this job. So be ready for one of the best sermons you've ever heard. I've now, I've now mastered this. Uh, Don, thanks for sharing your testimony. I know, I think I saw you in here somewhere. But really, really appreciated hearing that. Th- this morning, we're going to take a look at a testimony in God's word. I'd, I'd asked Kyle, you know, where, where did Jim leave off in the book of Philippians before he left? Because I preached through the book of Philippians when I got to Bethel, and there was one section of scripture that Jim hadn't preached, and that's in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. And when Paul shares his testimony here in Philippians chapter 3, the, the main idea, or the main word that he is using to address his faith is the word confidence. And in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see what it means to have confidence in our faith, but also what happens when we have our confidence found in something outside of God. So pray with me. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, asking that you would be with us. Lord, as we examine what you offer us in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would see that worth, that value as greater than all things. Would you be with us? Would you be glorified? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I like to think everyone's confident about something. You know what I mean? Some people are externally confident. You, you know who I'm talking about? People that know they're confident, but also want everyone else to know they're confident. Some people wear it on their sleeve, literally or metaphorically. But some people are confident, and they're a little bit under the radar. Sometimes you'll go to someone's house, they'll invite you over for dinner, and do you cook often? No, not really. And then they bring out a dessert that they say they made from scratch. You're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten in my life. You're obviously a good cook. Confidence is something that all of us have, but some of us like to broadcast it more than others. And when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, if you remember, there were two primary issues that Paul was trying to address. The first was that he was awaiting a verdict on whether or not he would be executed or not. This was a church that Paul had planted. He loved these people. He knew them by name, and he was now in jail. He wasn't sure what was going to happen to them, and he wanted them to know he remembered them. He cared for them. He loved them. And the second thing was that there was division happening within the church in Philippi. I don't know if you've ever been a part of church conflict before. It's not fun. It's messy. And that's exactly what's happening at the church of Philippi. And Paul is saying in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disunity, pursue the gospel that unites all people. But when we get to this section of scripture... I think Paul's main point is this. Where we find our confidence, our joy will be also. Where we find our confidence, our joy will be also. So look at what Paul says 
in verse 1, and we're going to work all the way through verse 11, verse by verse. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul starts off and says, finally, and Paul's not signifying the end of the letter, but rather a major transition is happening in the letter. Philippians chapter 2, if you remember, is talking about the lordship of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, but this is a transition to the next part where he says, rejoice. And this word rejoice has came up often throughout the letter. And sometimes I think we can just gloss over it. But it's really hard to rejoice, isn't it? It's really hard to be thankful. It's much easier to complain about things. Already, so many of you have asked me, how's it going? Like, how are things at Bethel? How's, it, you know, how's your family? And I say, we're doing good, but it's just so cold here all the time. <laughs> Evansville was so nice. My friends went golfing yesterday. And I'm freezing every day. But really, we're doing great. But it's so much easier to not be thankful for all of the ways that God has provided. But for me to point out the one or two, you know, frustrations that are happening in my life. And the joy that Paul is talking about here is not the same as happiness. You think about happiness, it's a term that's associated with the word happenstance, or things that happen randomly or uh, fickle. What Paul's talking about, as one pastor said, is the feeling of exhilaration, a joy that persists in the face of weakness, pain, suffering, and even death. What Paul is saying is, the faith that he has in Jesus is not fickle. It's one that doesn't wane in the midst of death, loss, pain, weakness. In church, can we be honest? Is that easier said than done, or what? It's easy to hear that, it's easy to read that, but when hard things happen in our life, when frustration comes, when people leave us that we were counting on, when people that we love, they're no longer here, it's hard to believe this. It's hard to believe this. It's hard for our confidence to truly be found here when we're actually experiencing the hardships of life. But what Paul's saying is we cannot seek to find joy in the happenstances of this world. We can't look for joy in areas that are fickle in this life. But our joy must come from something that is certain. And when I hear a testimony like Don's or when someone shares a testimony, the beauty of a testimony is not just hearing good things. Although that is a benefit for sure. The best part of a testimony is knowing that the gospel is real. It's tangible. It changes hearts. It changes the trajectories of lives. And sometimes, just like with rejoicing, we forget that the gospel actually has power to change us. And we just think, one time in one place, that story is making a difference, but some of us that have grown up in the church our whole life or went to the Christian schools and all of those good things, we forget that the gospel has the power to change us today. 
Because often we do misplay our confidence and we place it somewhere else. And Paul gives us a few warnings in this passage. The first is in verse 2, he says some weird things. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's giving a warning to the church in Philippi. There was a people group at the time called the Judaizers, and the Judaizers were a people that were embracing aspects of the Christian faith while trying to partner it with some of the Jewish sacrificial laws, like circumcision. So you can believe in Jesus, and that's good, do that, but if you're not circumcised, you're out. And Paul's saying, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for the mutilators of the flesh. When he says dogs, why does he say that? We love dogs, right? I love my dog. Do you love your dog? You should. You don't have a bloodhound like me, though. And if you did, you would love your dog. Even though my wife right now, Jen's around here somewhere, she might say Max is not on our good side for chewing up her couch pillows. Uh, But you can get those at Ikea for like a dollar. So it's fine. (laughs) Context matters. Context matters. 2,000 years ago, dogs were not sweet household pets, but filthy, dirty animals that roamed the streets, were full of disease. Dogs were not something you wanted to be associated with. And what Paul was doing, because the Jewish people would often label dogs as unclean, and because they were unclean, those who were holier than thou had to avoid them at all costs. Anything that could get me dirty, I'm staying away from And What Paul is doing is he's associating those self-righteous people with a dirty animal. Avoid them. The evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, talking about circumcision. What Paul is saying here ultimately comes down in verse 3 when he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? Confidence is often based on comparison. And Kyle was talking a little bit about this as he was praying. But we are so quick to compare ourselves to other people, aren't we? Because in order for us to know that we're doing a good job, often we have to have a standard for what is good. So if you are a golfer and you're out playing golf, your standard of success is often not how well you play, but how well you play compared to the other person. If you're taking a test, your standard of success might not be getting 100%, but if the rest of the class is getting a B and you get an A, you think, okay, the standard now is my level of success. But what the gospel does is it frees us from comparison because ultimately comparison is a cancer that will eat away at us. If you're constantly comparing what you have to what other people have, It'll never be enough. If you compare the way you look to how other people look, you'll never look good enough. If you compare how much money you have to someone else, you'll never have enough. What Paul is saying here is that the standard for us to compare ourselves to is not to other people, but to Christ himself. The ultimate standard of good. And how does Paul do this? In verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. When you evaluate your faith, 
What's your standard for saying, I'm doing pretty well with my faith? Have you ever thought about that? Some of you are coming in this morning, some really struggling, some on top of the world. But if you were to evaluate your faith, one through ten, ten being, I'm doing the best I ever have been, I'm loving God more than I ever have been, I'm serving in all these ways, or one, it's not even on my radar. How would you evaluate that for yourself? Sometimes it's by church attendance on a Sunday, sometimes it's by giving or serving, but often we look around and say, am I doing more than that person? Am I doing more than the person next to me? And Paul goes on to say, if anyone should have a reason to brag about their faith, it's me. And he goes on this long list, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does this mean? Paul begins to associate a lot of things to find confidence in with his faith and with his life and circumcised on the eighth day according to the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis. If you were brought up in the Jewish faith, being circumcised on the eighth day was critical to your faith. And Paul's saying, I have a reason to be confident in doing all of the right rituals, all of the right things on the right day at the right time. I've done it of the people of Israel. He was a part of God's chosen people. Paul saying, don't put confidence in your race, but rather God over all people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, specifically Benjamin remained faithful to Judah after Solomon's death. King Saul was a Benjamite. Jerusalem belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul saying, greatness doesn't come by status but by your status in Christ. To be a Benjamite meant to have a great standing among the people. And Paul said, don't find confidence in your status. A Hebrew of Hebrews it's likely indicated that he knew the Hebrew language Aramaic inside and out. He could read his Old Testament in Hebrew. He probably had most of it memorized. Paul saying is, don't find confidence in your education or the things that you think you know because he knows more. As to the law of Pharisee, he kept all of the rules. All of the rules. And Paul said, don't find confidence in your obedience. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul's saying here is, it's not the quality of our faith that matters. Have you ever thought about that? When you think about that scale, that one to 10, I want to free you up a little bit to say, it's not the quality of your faith that matters the most, but it's the object of your faith that matters the most. Your faith, if you're truly following Jesus and living a normal life, is going to be a roller coaster. Where things are going well in your life and you think everything's good, and then moments where you're on your knees wondering if this season of life will ever come to an end. Why can you have hope in those moments? Not because your faith is good or bad or strong or weak, but because Jesus is enough. What Paul is saying here is the reason to not put confidence in the flesh is because you are not saved by the strength of your faith, but you're
but you're saved by the object of your faith. You're not saved by your might and your will, but you're saved by grace through faith. So Paul goes on to maybe one of the more powerful parts of the New Testament and says, now I've said all of these things. Don't put confidence in the flesh. I should do that if anyone should, and I'm still not doing it because whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Our tendency as people is to find our confidence, our hope, our joy, our peace in our accomplishments, the things that we do. Because I do this for a living, because I have this much money or drive this car or have these friends or this degree or am this way in the community, look at me because I do these things. When you get to know someone, what's one of the first things you ask them? What do you do? Who are you? We find our identity in the things that we do primarily. But there's three things I see in this aspect of the passage that I think are important. The first is when Paul says he counts all things as loss. But it's not just that he counts all things as loss, but notice what he says. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. What Paul's saying here is the things that he used to see as positives in his life, what he used to hang his hat on and said, this is who I am, those things he now considers his greatest liabilities. Isn't that amazing? What Paul said was what he used to find his confidence in, what he used to associate himself with are now his greatest liabilities to his faith. In other words, if you say, what I find my identity in or my success in or my self-worth in is my marriage or my job or my X, Y, or Z. Those things, if they become greater to you or more valuable to you than Jesus, can become your greatest liabilities to loving Jesus as much as you should be. He counts his gains as loss. But not just that, he counts everything as loss. Not just his gains, but everything. And it echoes what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 when he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow Jesus and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, hating your mother, your father, your spouse, your children, even your own life. What's Jesus saying there? It matters for us if we want to sincerely follow Jesus, if we want to find this hope, this joy, this peace that the gospel offers. We have to hate all of those things. What Jesus is saying, that word hate, is not to despise, which is how we often use it, but to love less than. In order to truly know and love Jesus, we must love him above all other areas of our life. Any other earthly relationship must come second to Jesus. And he goes on to say, 
he considers his losses rubbish. That Greek word can also mean dung. Again, graphic language from Paul. But what he's doing is he's comparing his greatest accomplishments to trash. Now, it's hard to get an understanding of this, so the best way I can associate it with is with pizza. Big pizza guy. And one of the first things I did when I moved to Dyer was we would try to find what's going to be our staple pizza place. And because we are, uh, well, probably shouldn't say that, because we like to make good decisions in life, <laughs> we eat at Aurelio's, and only Aurelio's. It's the best. It's not as good in Lowell. I'm sorry if that's the one you go to. <laughs> I know that's the closest one. You got to go further north. You got to go further north. The quality decreases in the Aurelius ingredients the further south. Um, and, but sometimes, you know, you got to save some money and you got to eat a frozen pizza. And the worst frozen pizza in the world, there's only one right answer, this may be in the Bible, is DiGiorno's. <laughs> DiGiorno's is a guaranteed burn your mouth 100% of the time you, that pizza, you could take it out of the oven, let it sit there for six hours. It's the Yeti of pizzas. It, it maintains its temperature at all times. The first bite will numb you and you think it tastes good, but you actually can no longer taste. And the point of this, before my stand-up comedy tour ends, is when I compare Aurelio's to DiGiorno's pizza, it's not even the same conversation. The value, the taste, the quality of my favorite pizza place compared to my least favorite are in different atmospheres. And what Paul is saying in the same way is whatever gain he has, he counts as loss. And not just loss, but he counts them as rubbish. What he's saying is what I used to find my hope in, my joy in, whatever it is. Paul goes on a long list of accomplishments here. Education, obedience, following the rules, all of those things which in and of themselves are not bad things. It's good to keep rules. It's good to be educated. It's good to be proud of where you came from. But what Paul's saying is when those things began to trump his relationship with God and he entered into a relationship with Jesus, what he did was now he saw the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And those other things, although they're good, became clearly less than. So much so that it wasn't even in the same conversation. So Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the greater worth, the greater value of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. In order to give something up in your life, if you've ever tried to kick a habit or start a new one, you almost always have to when you give something up, you must be gaining something greater. I'm stopping this to gain this. What you're losing, you're replacing with something clearly better than. In community, some of my favorite people that I get to see once or twice a year, so I can always tell you something that I think is really important, hard, and then just run out the door. I'm going to do that here. You know how much you love something or you know how much you love someone 
by what you're willing to give up to get it. You ever thought about that? You know how much you love something by how much you're willing to give up to get it. You know how much you love someone by how much you're willing to give up to get it. And in our lives, we, you and I, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, 50 years to 50 days, there will always be things in our life that are trying to obstruct or get in the way of our faith, that try to distract us or occupy our thoughts, our hearts, our mind, to keep us from loving Jesus more. Jesus told a short parable about this in Matthew 13 when he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. Kingdom of heaven, being face to face with God himself. No more tears, no more sadness, everlasting joy. That day is coming for those who know Jesus. And when Jesus tells this parable, he says, that kingdom, what that will be like, it's like when a man is going on a walk and he passes a field. And we drove down here today, Dyer's pretty busy, and my kids, as soon as we hit Cedar Lake, said, this is the country, Dad. This is the country. I said, why is this the country? Do you see the fields? The fields? And I'm like, you don't know nothing yet. <laughs> you don't know nothing. But imagine driving by one of those fields and you were tipped off that one of those fields had a million dollars buried beneath it. And to buy it, you just had to spend $10,000 to buy the field. You would do everything you could to scrape together $10,000 to buy that field. Everything. The clothes off your back, your watch, your shoes. Why? It's a no-brainer. There's a million dollars there. What's $10,000 compared to a million? And that's what Jesus is getting at when he tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is that value. And a man who knows what he's getting out of it will sell all that he has in his joy. Those, those words are so critical. That when you love something or someone, you give things up and it's costly. And giving things up or saying no to things does hurt. Jen and I... About a year and a half ago, we got a dog. Have I told you guys about Mowgli before? The best dog. He was a sheep-a-doodle. Sheep-dog and a doodle. Never get a doodle. Don't do it. The story will get there. But Mowgli was a sheep-a-doodle. And for a month, he was the best dog in the world. Loved our kids, loved our family, was huge, would play together. He was the best. And I loved Mowgli. But one day, Jen called me about a month in and said, hey, Mowgli growled at Griffin, our four-year-old. And I said, babe, Mowgli would never do that. I know Mowgli. He's the best dog. My dog would never growl at Griffin. But I came home, Mowgli sitting in my lap. Griffin comes into the room, and Mowgli just lunges at Griffin. And in that moment, there were a couple realities that took place in my life. The first is the awareness that Mowgli is who Jen said he is. He might be sweet and kind to me, but to our two-year-old at the time, not so much. And the second is, there's a consequence that's going to happen if I keep Mowgli in the house. 
because what I just saw is never going to leave my mind. And in that moment, I had to make a really hard decision that was incredibly simple. Who do I love more? My dog or my son? Very simple decision. I choose Griffin 10,000 times out of 10,000. But I loved my dog, and he had to go. Because in comparison to the love I have for my son, that dog is worthless. And Mowgli left the next day. It was a hard decision. It grieved Jen and I because we did really like our dog. But in comparison to the love that we had for Griffin, meaningless. And in our life, we have to make decisions like that all the time. Not with animals, but sometimes with toys, sometimes with dreams, sometimes with ambitions, that what is our greatest hope in this life? Is it truly knowing and enjoying Jesus with all that we have? If so, giving up a couple small things along the way that is obstructing our faith in the grand scheme of our life means nothing. In giving up Mowgli to be able to love and enjoy my son more was the easiest decision I ever made. And in our life and our faith, we'll be making decisions like that day in and day out. Because knowing Christ is worth everything we have and it's worth everything we are. Paul ends this passage by saying this. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says two important things in one with this. The first is where death is found spiritually and where life is found. If we continually seek to find righteousness or goodness in ourselves or in the things that we have, we will be let down day in and day out. We will never measure up to the standard that we want. And the reason Jesus came in and of ourselves is so we could believe in someone who did love us, who did live a perfect life, who did in his death give us grace, transforms our hearts, changes us. And that's what Paul says that life is found. He says life is found by being found in him. To gain Christ means to be found in him. What does that mean? When we leave this sanctuary, auditorium, worship center, and you come and talk to me out in the hallway, my son is going to run up to us in that conversation. And you're going to say, hey, Griffin, how's it going? And do you know what he's going to do? He's going to hide behind me so he does not have to look at you. And do you know what Griffin's doing in that moment? He's saying, I don't really care to talk to you right now. And behind my dad is safety. You can't see me. You can't acknowledge me because in my way is my greatest shield. The one who I love, the one who loves me. And here is safety. And where we can be safe is where we can find confidence and hope and pleasure. 
in the same way, that's what the gospel does for us, is that we are effectively being hidden by Christ in all that we do. That when God looks at us, he no longer sees your shame. He no longer sees the things that you've struggled with your whole life. He no longer sees the things that have brought you so much pain. When God looks at the person who has put their faith in Christ, he sees Jesus himself. He sees perfect righteousness and love and peace because he sees his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. This is what the gospel does. This is why we can have confidence because we are hidden completely behind Jesus and his love and work for us. So church, whom I love dearly and love getting to see you, is this where your confidence is found this morning? Because everything around you is going to tell you to look somewhere else. And if you look anywhere else for your supreme confidence in this life, for your supreme happiness, you won't find it. It'll let you down. But what this confidence in Christ can do can free you up to love your spouse better, to love your kids better, to work harder, to enjoy what you do have, to be able to rejoice in all things at all times, no matter how much easier said than done that reality is. Confidence in Christ transforms. Confidence in things that we can see will eventually leave us empty and wanting something else. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, God, hoping, trusting, praying that this reality would be true for us, that where our confidence is, our joy will be also. Lord, I pray that through your spirit, through your work on the cross, Lord, that our hearts, our souls, our minds, our spirits would be found in Christ alone. Lord, for so many, Lord, who are struggling, who are just trying to get through the day. Lord, I just pray for supernatural peace, strength, and healing for those who desperately need it. Lord, would you help us as a church to love those who are hurting, to be Christ to those who need someone. And Lord, would you use this church to reach many people in Roselawn and Damat and Lake Village with this gospel, with this joy, with this message that transforms We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.